0: To the abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM. You can catch us online at CFUR.ca.
1: Today, uh, your hosts Kristen and Jeremy are recording from the confines of their own homes, um, but on the traditional unceded territory of the Claytlay Tene First Nation. And today, we talked to Alex Bevington, who's a researcher with the Ministry of forest lands, natural resource operations, and rural development. And he's also working on his Ph.D. at UNBC.
0: Yeah, and before we dive into the show, I just wanted to we just wanted to put out a slight disclaimer because we're still getting used to producing these shows remotely. Normally, we have a full recording studio to work with, and uh, there's a lot of logistics figuring out how to get a decent mic into our houses and how to get the uh, editing software to work. Um, so just bear with us as we uh, might produce some rough cuts here, but the show is great today, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you.
1: Before we get into our interview with Alex, uh, we're going to play a quick quick tune for you. This comes from the very, very well-known and well-regarded Canadian band Arcade Fire. Alex is going to be talking to us about his work in the mountains in the cryosphere. So this uh, song comes from their album, their 2010 album, The Suburbs. This is Sprawl 2, Mountains Beyond Mountains.
0: to The Abstract on 88.7 FM in Prince George. You can catch us online at cfur.ca. And we're doing this recording on the traditional territory of the Clayton And uh, this week on the show we have Alex Bevington. Hello Alex. Hey how's it going? Good. And of course our trusty co-host Kristen Keita. Hello. Well, thanks so much for coming in today, Alex. Not Um, coming
1: in, Jeremy. (laughs) Oh, right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess this is our first actual interview uh, remotely.
2: Yeah, I think that's a common theme uh, in the last few weeks. Yeah.
0: So so people are going to cut us lots of slack.
1: Let's hope so. Well, thanks again, Alex, for uh, being on the virtual show today and dealing with our tech issues and learning. Um, so do you want to just maybe just give us a bit of a background on some of your educational history and where you come from and how you got to PG?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Well, th- thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's uh, it's it's awesome. I, lo- I love podcasts and listen to them all the time. Um, so my name is Alex Bevington, and I'm uh, originally from a town just uh, west of Ottawa, so in Ontario, and I was raised bilingual. Um, my mom was from northern Quebec and then slowly migrated downtown Ottawa um, throughout my life and did a, um, I started a, a Bachelor of Arts in History at university um, and then dropped out completely of university and just went traveling for a while. Um, while traveling, I was um, kind of first acquainted, you could say, with uh, the physical world, in a sense. Um, I, I went on bi- bicycle trips across Europe and stuff. And and you realize that when you bike uphill, it's harder than going downhill and just getting acquainted with geography. So um, when I came back to Ottawa, I went back to university in geography and then did a BSc um, in geography and then a master's as well. And then the master's, um, I was very fortunate to do a lot of work in in the North, so in Nunavut and uh, Northwest Territories, and and then I lived in the Yukon for a couple of years for my Master's, which was really cool. And then after the Master's, I came to Prince George. Um, I applied on a job, um, as most people do, um, before they finished their Master's, and I got it. It was a research job for the BC government, And um, nice. uh, but I wasn't done my Master's, so then you're in the pickle of starting a new job and having to finish your Master's and all that kind of stuff. Um, So that was five years ago. And now I've been in Prince George for five years and uh, work for the BC government as a research hydrologist, which is a switch I did last year Um, before I was a research earth scientist. It's all kind of in the same realm. And then um, I'm doing a PhD at uh, UNBC on the side, you could say. which is a little bit challenging, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. So a PhD and a government scientist right now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> PhD on the side, eh? That's, <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, sounds like you didn't uh, necessarily learn any lessons from starting up the job while you're still doing your master's. So no, I assume that no, you finished your that, master's so it worked out.
2: Yeah, well, um, they never actually asked me for my like diploma for my master's when you start a PhD, which is kind of funny. So I, <laughs> I actually wonder if you could... Roll into the PhD program without proving that you've done a master's. Anyway. <laughs> Not that you'd recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah. What What did you do your master's research in?
2: Yeah, so it was uh, it, it, it was centrally themed around permafrost, so ground that's perennially frozen, um, which is uh, quite common in northern Canada and and also some places of northern BC. And um, essentially, the gist of the masters was that we took a whole bunch of weather stations, a ton, and uh, these weather stations had like air temperature, uh, ground surface temperature, and also what we call the top of permafrost, like soil temperature, you could call it. And we looked at relationships um, between those temperatures. And so somewhere with snow, for instance, would have a very different ground temperature than air temperature because there's a big... uh, layer that's insulating the ground. But if there's no snow, your ground and air temperatures will be almost identical. And so what we did is we we built all these relationships at a whole bunch of weather stations and tried to model spatially the temperature of the ground so that we can map where there is and where there is not permafrost um, in, in the Yukon. Um, but my original thesis title was to do that for all of the Yukon and then my final thesis title was like for three small regions in the Yukon because I started out trying to do too much and then uh, had to rein it in (laughs) yeah (laughs) because you got to finish your masters at some point right that's the gist of it
0: yeah yeah did um did that project kind of was that kind of offered to you while you were finishing up your bachelor's then or was that something you crafted out with a prof once you were finished
2: yeah yeah good question so that was like uh Something I really enjoyed out of my bachelors was just going to do fieldwork with some of my professors Um, and I volunteered a lot um, and that got me onto really cool trips all over northern Canada and so that was a project that was sort of uh, um, a bit of both. Um, I'd already done fieldwork for some of those weather stations in the Yukon before this project kind of um, came to light. But the actual thesis topic itself was a conversation with my supervisor um, where we tried to figure out, you know, between my skill sets, what I wanted to learn, um, what I wanted to contribute and the type of work I was enjoying. um, What's a good research question that would would fit well with with who I am and and who my thesis supervisor was.
1: And so was the like what was the. I don't know, like the, how did people use the work that you did in your master's? How did people in the Yukon, like what, what is that information used for?
2: Yeah. I mean, ultimately you hope that, uh, when you do research, you know, it'll change the world, um, for the better. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's actually quite a bit that goes into that, right. It's, uh, equal parts, um, you know, good science and good communication and understanding where you fit into the whole mechanism. So I'd say my, my master's, um, is of interest for a lot of reasons, um, to people um, that look at things like climate change or look at transportation like roads or look at environmental change or infrastructure like where to put airports or you know build houses and things like that because permafrost is a really important piece of Northern engineering. So if you build a house on permafrost, that house will actually thaw the ground underneath it, most cases, because mm-hmm. the house generates heat um, and blocks uh, the ground from uh, cold winter air temperatures. And so um, if you don't build your house properly, your house will sink in a sense. Your, the ground underneath will, will thaw and collapse and then the house will kind of slowly you know, sink into the ground. And so if you have a better idea as an engineer, or as a planner, where there is and where there isn't permafrost, um, you can plan communities and you know infrastructure a lot better. That said, is my thesis actually used in that um, way? Uh, I've been contacted probably three or four times for the data for my thesis, and that was five years ago. And <laughs> it's not particularly well published and stuff. I, there's only like a my thesis is online, and then there's a conference paper that came out of it. But um, I think there, there, if I had more time um, or you know picked up the project again, I think there's a lot more I would do with the knowledge I have now about how science can help you know, informed policy and, and things like that. So, so I, I feel like my thesis uh, could have done a lot more than what it did in terms of societal impact, um, outreach with First Nations, for instance, you know. Um, th- that said, the Yukon College, which is in um, Whitehorse, um, they've got a permafrost program and they have an excellent communication group. And they'll do things like have uh, um, placemats at truck stops throughout the Yukon will have like permafrost cartoons on them. Oh, so cool. there's like cartoons that explain <laughs> that explain like what science is being done, what permafrost is, what happens when you don't think about permafrost when you build. Um and so there's a there's a lot of people doing great work and and my thesis was just one one small portion of that.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. kind of that's why I was asking that. It kind of seems like I was you know, you hear a lot about the road from Nunavik to Tuck and how they're going to have all sorts of permafrost issues. So, so maybe, yeah, you haven't you haven't thought that it's gotten much uh, traction yet. But only time will tell as those things become more and more important.
2: Yeah, yeah, I definitely think the field of science is 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 uh, is very important, especially in northern Canada. Um, but I, I was learning a lot, you know, and they're uh, underpaid and overworked as a grad <laughs> yeah, That's exactly so. right. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of a challenge in a lot of research is, is you know, even if you do have great findings, then how do you actually distribute it in a meaningful or useful way to the stakeholders in your region? So, which I guess, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about that in a, in a later time in this interview uh, on uh, maybe how you've come across that working in the government. But, uh, but yeah, I think um, we're coming up to... Uh, music time here, I think. So uh, Kristen is going to line up a song uh, for our listeners. Uh, yeah, and, so uh,
1: the the warning is that at this point <laughs> we're working off of my personal library, which stopped being added to in about 2010. <laughs> so uh, finding songs that went along with things like the cryosphere and mountains and lakes was tough. So the next, the song that we're going to play uh, next is by the Fleet Foxes, and it is Blue Ridge Mountains, which are in North Carolina, nowhere near BC, uh, but we'll go with that anyway.
0: Okay, well, welcome back to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM, and uh, you can catch us online at cfur.ca. And in the studio today, we have Alex Bevington, who is doing his PhD in geography here at UNBC, and he is also working as the research hydrologist uh, at Flinroard here in Prince George. So welcome back. Thank you. So we wanted to dive in a little bit into uh, what you're doing within the UNBC community, um, Alex. So could you just outline what your PhD project
2: is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I started my PhD in 2016 in September, and I'm working with uh, two co-supervisors, um, Dr. Brian Menunos, who's kind of a quaternary geologist, a LIDAR, glacier um, researcher, and then Martin Gertzema, who's... Um, Uh, BC government geomorphologist and so my thesis has evolved over the last uh, three and three years or three and a half years and it started out as kind of a geomorphology um, project where I was looking at hazards in the mountains and to see if hazards are increasing in frequency with uh, deglaciation so as glaciers retreat Um, but that thesis has actually morphed into more of a water question which um, what we're looking at is the change of the mountain cryosphere over time and using satellite remote sensing to do that. So we're looking at three things. One is glaciers and how they've changed over the last 40 years with satellites. Um, we're looking at snow and we're looking at uh, lake ice. So there's a lot of questions about how climate change is affecting mountains and if, if climate change uh, has an accelerated or an amplified signal in the mountains of B.C., and so we're trying to see if there's a way that we can look at these things and, 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 and make some relationship between, you know, are mountains changing faster than lowland environments in uh, the recent past, so the last uh, 30 or 40 years um, with satellite remote sensing? So it's a big data challenge. Um, my background, I did a lot of field work in my master's and my bachelor's, which we sort of talked about a bit. And now kind of there's zero fieldwork in my uh, Ph.D., and it's all kind of data-driven. Um, so so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big data kind of project. It's a lot of fun. Okay, cool.
0: Are, are you using any observational data from weather stations that are in these mountains already then that are available, or is it strictly all data derived from satellites?
2: Yeah, so I mean, there's all kinds of little ways we can validate what we're doing with Uh, higher resolution data so either kind of like lidar um, or air photos or you know places that have really good field studies and field campaigns with published data sets and so we're using those um, but there's like 16,000 glaciers in british columbia and so we'll only be kind of validating um a few points, and that's not really a super rigorous or you know comprehensive way of evaluating the performance of an automated model um, that we're kind of building here. And so, so there's a lot of different steps we're trying to take to validate, and and one is um, using data that's you know already existing out there, field field data. Um, it's just the logistics and constraints and everything with the project and how the project's evolved. Um, most of the time, if you want to do a proper field campaign, uh, you should have, um, you know, that's like what you do first and then you start building your model and then by the time you finish your PhD or you're, you're ready to write it, I mean, in the next few years, then your field campaign makes sense and my, my PhD is a bit, a bit more of a chaotic experience in terms of changing <laughs> my changing my topic over time and, and things like that. Yeah. So it's a little bit... Um, you know, it'd be nice to do a really comprehensive field campaign, but for the questions we're asking, it's not really that necessary because the glaciers have changed so much that the, the even from space, it's very clear what's happening. And, you know, our error bars are maybe big, you know, like we're not really exactly sure exactly to the meter where the glacier was, but it's changed like 800 meters over the last 40 years. So even if we're a little wrong the change that's real is way bigger than our, you know, uncertainties. So um, we still have a lot of confidence in the work we're doing. And I think it's still a a necessary and a really relevant, you know, thesis for for people in BC and and in the Glacier and Cryosphere community.
1: Yeah, I think I I saw you give a talk pretty early on, um, maybe in the first year or so of your project. And um, you were working with like either exclusively or almost exclusively open source data. Um, so if that's still the case, can you just talk about like why you've chosen that path?
2: Yeah, good good, good, good point. Yeah, that, that's a, that talk was a few years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so there's different satellite data sets out there and some of them are free, completely free to just anybody who wants to use it and others you pay for. And uh, typically the free ones, are sort of data sets that are relevant to the scale of you know my thesis which is looking at glaciers which are quite large Um, and and so one thing that we really wanted to emphasize is i want to do wall-to-wall coverage for all of british columbia for each of my thesis chapters so i want to look at all of the glaciers of bc not just a handful i want to look at all of the snow in bc and all of the lakes and so to do that kind of work you can't really unless you have a massive budget um you you have to work with the data that's free and there's so much of it there's you know there there are literally millions of free satellite images of british columbia and so there's value just sitting there waiting for people like me or like anybody to you know take that imagery and answer these really basic questions about Um, the landscape that we were kind of slow to answer right now like the last time the glaciers were mapped for british columbia was in 2010 and that was data from 2005 that they used so we really don't know where the glaciers are right now and i would argue that there's no good reason that we don't know where they are because the data is free. It's easy to use. It's taking me a while to do it just because I'm a space cadet, but um, <laughs> it, it's all just sitting there. And so there's there's all kinds of questions like that. of just, you know, where are there, you know, forest fires and cut blocks and where are the rivers and the lakes? And, you know, this kind of basic cartographic element um, that, that this free satellite data is just sitting there kind of waiting, waiting for people to, to use it. Um, and, and then the, the challenge with the thesis is just putting that change into a scientific context of, you know, why is this change happening? Can we can we expect more of it? And are there places, you know, that are kind of red flags on the landscape right now?
0: Hmm. And, uh, and so... Uh... When you're saying you know you're doing this satellite based project using all this free data do you mean to literally say that i can just go onto my web browser type in the right website and then just download images from various satellites is that simple of a process to do to acquire the data
2: for your research yeah totally so so i mean it's a yes and no question it it is that simple quote unquote um but the deeper you dive into it the the more complicated things can get but or oh, I'd say over the last three or four years, um, we've started to see these, you know, the, the app builders, the developers out there, the people that build. You know, there's a smartphone for for your app, which I have no affiliation with, but it's called Planet, Snap Planet, S N A P Snap Planet, and you can just like make a time lapse video. Like I try, I made one this morning because I was curious with coronavirus and COVID-19, um, if you could tell if there's less boats in the harbor of Vancouver. You know, over the last two months or so because they've shown that in the Mediterranean there's a lot less boats on the water and I just thought it'd be a fun thing to check out and I just sat there while drinking my coffee this morning and clicked a few buttons on an app which basically anyone can do um, just look at a calendar and say I want to start January 1st and finish today and it just played the imagery in a little video for me and so that we're seeing more and more of these really easy to use little apps um, but that said to do the you know hardcore science it does get nerdy eventually. You have to um, start debating, you know, pixel depth and things and all kinds of nerdy oh stuff. But but, <laughs> but, but, but there's, uh, I'd say hand in hand with things like Google Maps and you know how everybody likes to use Google Earth and look at the imagery. Um, those types of technologies are just increasing um, because everybody wants to know what's going on on the landscape right now, um, yeah. Right on.
0: Um, And so I guess one other question, just to go back to your project um, before the the next break. Um, When you say that you you can't do a lot of field validation of the satellite imagery that you're using, is there a way that you can kind of cross-validate? Like, say you've got data from one satellite, and then you have data from the same place from a different satellite. Are you able to do some validation that way of your research, or...? Is that not quite as valid or robust as having field observations?
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's it's always the gold standard is always field work, right? That's that's the best thing. Put someone out there, give them a GPS, and walk the edge of the glacier, the whole thing, right? And that would give us a really good data point. But that's actually incredibly difficult and sometimes quite dangerous to do. I've worked on a lot of glaciers and the margin, the the um, where ice meets rock is actually you know there's often big cracks and crevasses that go very deep and so although I am an adrenaline junkie and do enjoy that um, (laughs) if you're doing thousands and thousands of glaciers you're right the best way to sort of validate some of this work is to say I've got an automated algorithm that does this for you know all of BC and it does it really fast and it's cool and it's nerdy but now let's take some really good you know air photos or high resolution satellite imagery and we'll do a similar exercise and compare the two um and and so that's part of my thesis is there's two satellite archives that we're using for the glacier work particularly um one is landsat which is from the us and it's 30 meter resolution so 30 meter squares is are the pixels and then there's sentinel 2 which is from the europeans and it's 10 meter resolution so two different satellites one has nine times better resolution spatial resolution and so if we compare the mapping out of those two satellites at least we can see that you know one satellite isn't completely different than the other right They're, They they do agree with each other and the more we can prove that they agree with each other by using you know uh, higher resolution data um, the more kind of robust or the more confidence we have in uh, in the work that we're doing so
0: very cool well uh, i think we're coming up on our next break here so Uh, Again, you're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM, and this is The Abstract. You can catch us online at CFUR.ca. And uh, come back after the next break to hear more from Alex Bevington.
1: So our next song uh, comes from another Canadian favorite band from the, uh, you know, more mid-2000s range. This is the band Hot Hot Heat. Uh, And like Alex talked about with some of those cold nights working up in the north, Uh, This song is called So So Cold from the album Happiness Limited. Welcome back to The Abstract. Uh, Today we're interviewing Alex Bevington. Uh, He works for the Ministry of, we'll just go with Flynn Roard, and you can Google it later. There's lots of acronym words. Um, And so we just got done talking mostly about the work that you're doing on your PhD, but we're also hoping to hear just a little bit from you about some of the kind of interesting projects and probably diverse uh, group of projects that you get to do while working um, as a research hydrologist
2: yeah perfect um yes so so i uh working in research for government is always a funny thing i don't know a ton of um researchers government research r- researchers in in canada but um you're always um stuck between trying to do good science and do the best science you can but then also do work that's relevant um that people will actually use and hopefully you know a, a benefit to the public and a benefit to the people of bc and so you're always kind of stuck between the nerd in you who wants to do cool fancy science but then also um try to do things that are you know useful on the landscape and so bc british columbia is is a place where, you know, environmental science is needed. Like, we are uh, a very busy province. There is tons of stuff happening between forestry and mining and oil and gas, wildfires, you know, uh, drought, climate change. It is a very complex natural environment um, in, in British Columbia. And so it's a lot of fun trying to, you know, bring science into politics, which is, you know, um Sometimes a lot of fun, sometimes challenging because your role as a researcher is to to, to do science and not to make decisions. And so we uh, give information to decision makers. And so um, so it's a lot of fun. And uh, i worked on all kinds of different projects. Some really stem from the remote sensing part of my background, which is um, which has been very interesting. We've done a lot of mapping projects, a lot of you know change detection projects where you know we've looked at um, change on the landscape for from a variety of of, uh, goals from you know mapping wildfire to mapping industrial projects to mapping you know seismic lines and mapping all kinds of interesting things and then um, the other projects which are with my my new role as a research hydrologist are more hydrology oriented so some of those look at uh, stream temperatures and how climate change is impacting things like Uh, bull trout habitat and so we'll do some you know modeling of of stream stream temperatures into the future and um, others look at things like uh, you know uh, dams and weirs and uh, water use and yeah uh, yeah it's been interesting there's all kinds of jobs all kinds of projects um, but it's always challenging to you know take science and be able to write very simple you know um, summaries To people that are completely not in the same technical field that you're in. And so um, I think there's an important piece there, which, you know, uh, looking at academic friends of mine, either that are grad students themselves or, you know, professors, um, that's not a skill that's always honed in grad school or always um, Mm -hmm. brought to light is just being able to, you know, sit next to someone who you completely have no idea who they are and explain what you're doing and why it's important and um, and and how potentially this could affect them and you know I'm not perfect at it but I I definitely do try to um, reach out and that's something that we you know are are encouraged to do in government as researchers uh, is to you know communicate uh, our findings and communicate our research um, through through the ultimate of uh, peer-reviewed publication but everything all the way down to you know community presentations and and uh, yeah just Transparent science. and and Random
0: university radio shows, eh? Totally.
2: I didn't didn't realize
0: there were some uh, ulterior motives for joining us today, Alex. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I definitely get bonus Um, pay for this. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Lots, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, one thing that has um, come to mind for me is how do you actually end up on a given project? Who decides what Government researchers do their research on. Is it from the politicians' side where they hear from the general public, oh, there's this crisis happening, we need to focus on landslides, or is there some science that comes up from within the research departments themselves?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm I'm slowly learning how it all works after five years. Um, but I, I'd say there's two. You, you've kind of hit, hit hit the nail on the head here. There's there's definitely two um uh, routes for projects one is top down and the other one's bottom up and so um sometimes um i get or any researcher will get uh, involved in a project because this is a serious you know government priority right now and we need to do um some kind of uh scientific study to um, t- try to figure out what's going on. And it can have to have, have to do with things like landslides, but also fish and and all kinds of, you know, high priority projects. So, um, for instance, wildfires and being able to respond to wildfires in effective ways. There's research projects right now that look at things like debris flows that come after a wildfire because the soil is just burnt. So, um, When it rains after a wildfire, then you'll get a debris flow, which is kind of a a muddy landslide or a kind of a river-like landslide. And so places like the Elephant Hill fire near Cache Creek, now there's a bunch of signs on the road. And it says basically, don't stop during rain events because it's a very high kind of um, probability of of debris flows there because of the Elephant Hill wildfire. And then there's other projects which are, you know, uh, researcher-generated projects, you could say. So in an academic type of field, which is you know science, um, you're expected to be um, the authority in your field. You're kind of a, uh, an, an expert in that field for the government. And so, to be an expert in that field, you sort of have to keep up with the community and the literature, and uh, keep up with your understanding of the field. And that the best way to do that is to you know do you know quote unquote do science. Um, mm-hmm. And so coming up with projects, and the way that those are, you know, evaluated is that we all, you know, pitch our projects um, at a given time in the year to a committee, and that committee will select which projects kind of go forward. And there are some projects that, you know, don't go forward. But, um, and it's not because it's not a good project. It's just, you know, we are, um, our group is about 60 researchers in the B.C. government, Um for all kind of natural resource <laughs> topics, so it's it sounds like a lot, sixty researchers, but it's really you know we're, we're struggling to to you know do all of the things that we um, could, uh, could could do in the landscape, um, and and that's you know all over the place. I think any anyone will say any researcher will say we could always do more science. So um, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, well, as somebody that's hoping to
0: start a career in science myself, I would love it if there was more funding available to push people to do more
2: science so I can get a job.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, totally. No, uh, well, there, yeah, I think government science is pretty stable, you know, for the BC government. It's, uh, it's not in, you know, huge growth and it's not in, you know, it's not hard times either. Uh, we do hire like researchers and, and, and things. So, um, I'd say it's not the, it's not a bad time right now. There's a lot of great science happening. Um, but it is challenging, you know, to be you know our we have two climatologists, for instance, for you know northern bc uh, for all BC I mean uh, in the BC government. and so to be a uh, the expert in you know climate for all of northern bc, which is about the size of Germany, um, it's pretty tricky, right? so mm-hmm. um, yeah,
1: so I just um I'm gonna switch gears only ever so slightly. um and so still talking about your research, but can you kind of maybe talk a bit about uh, some of like the super cool field work that you got to do? You mentioned you were up in the Yukon um, and that you've been to none of it. So maybe just like either a fun story or just kind of like what that field work looked like.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I've got two uh, states of mind about field work right now. One is I, I would love to be in the field, you know, half the year or more. And they're, for, for a good portion there during my master's and my undergrad, I remember tallying up how many months i was in the field and over the course of something like two years i was in the field something like 14 months i can't remember exactly but it was wow. a lot of field work and i love being in the field and i love doing um uh, being well acquainted with my field sites and everything from glacier work to you know permafrost permafrost sounds boring because it's just frozen ground but you get to hang off of cliffs so uh, you, you repel you have big drills um it, it's a lot of fun um and now I have a family and I um, have a desk job and I could be doing fieldwork work um, for my research projects. And I do, I do probably something like three or four weeks of fieldwork a year right now, but I'm very happy to also have these, you know, desktop technical skills to be able to be with my family um, at the end of the day, which is, you know, a luxury that not everyone can, can afford when they have a family. Um, but mm-hmm. that's something that's, as an academic or as a, you know, researcher, it's, it's, um, good to have both sets of skills, right? The, the field savvy that you can, you know, fill jerry cans and repel and, um, do it safely. Um, but then you also, you know, if you, if I broke an ankle or something like that, I, I could actually, you know, keep doing my research from a desk. Um, and, and so I've had all kinds of different adventures on in field work, uh, uh, camped on the top of mountains and been stuck in storms and helicopters and all kinds of stuff. But the, the coolest and most hardcore fieldwork uh, I did was definitely in, the, in Nunavut. Uh, it was I went twice, and it was a one-month um, field campaign both times. And it was on Penny Ice Cap on Baffin Island, and it was in the spring. So the spring up there sounds you know spring in prince george it's like minus two out it's nice spring up there is friggin cold and it's um the winter essentially so we were up there in uh, in april um in april i think and the every day was the craziest story so i i can't tell them all but uh, you know i had a bottle of scotch in my tent and it nearly froze on me it like became slush like really really thick slush and i think scotch freezes at like something like uh Minus 65, right? Oh, God. <laughs> very, very, very cold. Uh, uh, I broke, I, I fell through a lake in that, in those conditions, and I like lost feeling to both my legs. And Wow.
3: Um,
2: we found a caribou uh, frozen in a glacier, like the antlers were coming out, and it was in the toe of the glacier. And the toe of the glacier is the part that's melting out, so it's the oldest ice that's kind of flowing uh flowing downwards and melting out so this is a caribou that must have fallen into a crevasse a long long time ago and is only now kind of melting out of the glacier and that was like one of the coolest things anyway um lots of fun stories in the field if uh anyone's listening who's an undergraduate student or um early career and there aren't a ton of job opportunities or you haven't found a job you know contact professors of yours or colleagues or and see if maybe they need a volunteer. I know it's not the soundest financial advice I have to give, but just get out in the field and and learn to love your field sites, learn to love field work, and get those skills because that's not a lot of people have both the field and the kind of technical desktop skills, and that hybrid is really really useful in uh, in environmental science.
1: That is like the best advice ever. I took a I think I was making like three or four dollars an hour. Uh, job out after my undergrad, but it, it did exactly that. It got me field skills and it got me in with the US Geological Survey. So,
3: not... totally. I think
2: I made a thousand dollars one summer. It was oh, like,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, 14 hour days every day for four months. It was just madness. And at the end, I got, but they paid my meals and the travel and the flights and a lot of fun. So, yeah, I highly recommend field work.
0: Nice. And so, the last uh, skill set that I'm gathering that you have which we haven't talked on yet is how do you actually manage doing this PhD doing the work for the government while also uh supporting your small family I guess I gather you had a a new daughter within the last two months or so didn't you
2: yeah 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 so I have a two-year-old and uh just a little uh how old is she two months old Yeah. so I've got two daughters now um and the short answer is is by doing everything kind of poorly <laughs> <laughs> and being late on everything, but uh, everyone's very understanding. Um, yeah, it's challenging. Um, what, what, one of my first jobs was when I was 16, I worked in an overnight diner um, in Ottawa called Zach's Diner. And I uh, worked there on and off for like three or four, maybe five years. I can't remember. And I worked nights, and I worked Friday, Saturday, overnights, and it was like 6 to 4 a.m. or 6 to 5, it depended on the night. Great. <laughs> and so I became a bit of an insomniac, and not to encourage anyone to do that or to become an insomniac, but when I started all of this kind of extreme multitasking, you could call it, full-time job, full-time PhD, and then you know slowly growing a full-time family, um, I thought I could do it all. And I thought I could stay up late and find hours in the day that nobody knew existed so that I could be super productive. Mm-hmm. And that's just not real. You can't do that. Um, at the end of the day, you need rest. And when you're working, you know, full tilt, you can do it for a little while. But it's not a PhD is long. A PhD is very long. Um, I think the average PhD in Canada is something like six years. Um, and wow. so to, you just can't burn the candle at, at that speed for for um, for that long. And so I've definitely had to scale it back and be okay with that. And there's something to be said about making to-do lists and not being apologetic about it and figuring out what, what your priorities are in life. And, and my priority, number one is my family, which I mean, everybody um, um, will understand and agree. And everybody else's pri- priorities are, are usually, you know, usually families first and, mm-hmm. When you can come to peace with that, everything, I just become so grateful for the time that I can work on these projects and try not to be stressed about the time that I'm not spending on them. Um, That said, um, how do you actually, you know, practically do that? Um, I have friends who have every 15 minute in their calendar is booked for a certain project and a certain thing. That's not me. I'm not able to time manage that way. Um, I need to be a little bit... uh, last minute it's a little bit um uh inspired you know i can't just like sit down to do science i have to really um have a re- feeling like I, I it takes so much focus to do this kind of work yeah. that i can't just turn it on anytime i want i have to you know find the time that's right to read i if i read a paper at the wrong time it'll just go in one ear and out the other. And so um, th- there are times that I, I enjoy the reads, other times I like coding and programming, other times I like to um, just fool around with data and, and play in a, in a learning kind of context. And, um, and I, I don't have a, a, a great solution for anyone, but I, I have learned, I've got a Google uh, spreadsheet, <laughs> and so I can access it from my phone and from any computer and I have every single thing I need to do on it, and I sort it by a whole bunch of different categories at the beginning, Um, things like uh, the the ultimate to-do date, like how long I have to do it, but then also interim to-do dates, and is this a priority project, and is this a slow project, and then I just sit there in the morning, update my list, hit sort, and then I do the first thing on the list. uh, huh. Or if I don't want to do that thing, I'll do the second thing or the third thing. But there's you know 200 things on that list right now or something like that, and wow. and I just kind of like go through it. And some of them are really gonna sit at the bottom of the list forever, and that's just the reality of it. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, they'll never make it to the top. <laughs>
0: Well, and certainly right now, while everybody's in isolation, I think a lot of people would resonate with uh, with what you've described here because it's, yeah, there's no way that you can juggle it all, especially when people are, are trapped in quarantine at their own homes while also teaching their children homeschool all of a sudden. Um, so I, I do like the Excel spreadsheet method, though. That sounds pretty good. Just <laughs> let the uh, algorithms sort out the priorities for the uh, work tasks.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've tried a bunch of apps and I, I don't, I don't I haven't found an app that uh, that is as good as just a list. <laughs> nice. <laughs> just a list of projects and then you kind of rank them and and at least nothing completely falls off the radar. That's the worst is when you forget that you have something to do um and then it just disappears. I feel so bad when that happens so <laughs>
0: yeah well I mean at the least uh, coming from you it sounds like a list is more of like a data scientist version of a list having been yeah. like a categorized matrix of uh, stuff so it <laughs> sounds like you've got a half decent system going there. Well, right on. Well, I think that's about it for for today. That's all the time we have. But uh, thank you so much for coming in, Alex. It's uh, really interesting to hear what you're up to and uh, how you're getting through it all. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks. Alex. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And thanks for putting on the podcast. It's a lot of fun and I enjoy listening to it. Thanks so much. Feel free to tweet about us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll do. We'll do.
0: Taking us out from this episode is Thomas Wells. The crime at Edmund Lake. Thanks for tuning in.
4: Leaves were raked at the end of Edmond Lake for the teams to find the evidence of why they failed to rise. Run out and hide when they heard the voices calling from the flame trees. I could see if the lavas hadn't been to the lake. Escape to town Take the greyhound with the coins Details of a crime made a shiver as we climb back. a guy. Could tell how rabbit and a spell could believe our eyes. The plastic apple pies and the strings that held covers in well and the coins. Run out and hide with the coins they found